0: BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.
1: When everyone is on the same page, getting things done is easy. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly.
0: Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's guest is composer John Merman. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Stuart. It's a pleasure having you on. Now, you're a composer living in Maine who writes music for choirs, movies, orchestras, soloists, kids' shows, commercials, church, and more, according to your biography. Uh, You also play piano, sing, conduct, are percussionist, accordionist, and much more. I mean... I thought the the story about the um, what you did with the immaculate Heart of Mary Parish in Auburn with this 1954 organ that was uh, reconstructed. I mean, it says. Re, I mean, it sounds like it was recent, but how recent was that? Was that something? Was that this year? Last year? That's very. That was
1: 2019. Um, yeah, my wife and I were living briefly in Massachusetts, mm-hmm. and we wanted to come back. Yeah, we wanted to come back Maine, and I and I had a a colleague. Who was an organist who called me, and they were looking for uh, an organist at a local church. Hmm. And it was it was actually very op- a great opportunity because we almost moved to Arizona oh, for wow. a similar thing, and that d- didn't work out. And that's far from you know you know family friends and And yeah, yeah, yeah. it became like this big this big coronavirus hotspot. You know where we were, <laughs> and we had we had our son was gonna was just about to be born, and then we got this call saying, "Oh, you want to come do this job in Maine?" So, oh. Opportune, and uh, my wife's parents are in Maine. Mine are in New Hampshire. So, with the sun coming on the way, it was very convenient. And yeah, I came into this job not ever having learned to play the organ. Um, no way. Yes, that's right. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm just a pianist, so I you know I know where to put my fingers. Of course. But, um, and uh, I had always wanted the opportunity to learn to play the organ, actually. And the um, is it more physical though? Compared to playing the piano? Oh, it's more physical. Um, no, I actually, I'd come kind of opposite in a way. It's almost more... I, I've, I've learned to think of it as you're, you're playing multiple flutes. Uh, okay. And it's really... I, for me, it's a lot more listening. I mean, physical in terms, you have to use your legs. But mm. um, you don't feel the physical feedback of the instrument in the way that you do with the piano. It doesn't come into your hands. Mm. You know, it comes from the from the pipes that are around you. Um, But yeah, it was, I came in and we didn't have the organ at the time. And six months after I started this job, we had this old electronic Allen thing. And then they were just at the end of the process of being, bringing this beautiful organ from a convent in the Midwest that I think was closing. Yeah, And um, installed it. They had a local organ builder, build this beautiful case, put all the pipes in and, and then COVID happened, you know, like really, two months later, and so I've just you know the past year I've just been able to practice the organ you know <laughs> for like twenty hours a week.
0: <laughs> it won't surprise people tuning into Britflix podcast that we've come to talk about your film composition work and in right. particular uh, the score you did for Honeydew, which was a film that I saw at um, FrightFest back in the autumn, and I referred in specifically to your skin crawling atonal score which right. having listened to it all now, cause it's now available for people to listen to in, 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 in its own right outside of the film. Um, it, there's a lot more going on. I mean, I think, I think in some ways, um, if I put on my music journalist hat on for a second, there's like, for me listening to it as a whole piece of work, it's got sort of the fractious electronica of say early noughties, warp warp records. Um, hmm. um, and then you know, in other ways, it feels like it's holding hands with the poison nature that's the story of the film. So it's <laughs> sort of it feels very real, but also very artificial. It's sort of almost, in some ways, it, it it goes between sort of a sledgehammer to crack a nut and very subtle at the same time sometimes. And it's sort of it's a it's a really uncomfortable and phys- physical experience to to hear it that way. And and obviously when you when you hear it in connection with the film, that's what gives it a presence. I felt like, um, I felt like Deverell Milburn director didn't shy away from indulging himself in using what music you provided. It's, it's got such a presence in the film. And it reminded me of um, Mark Corvin's score for the witch or David Julian's score for the descent Hmm. in the sense that they've both got that ability to be as uncomfortable away from the film as they have when you watch the film.
1: Well, you know, actually, I was hesitant about making a standalone album from the movie because of that, because it's so integrated with the movie, with the film itself. I was like, well, does it, I don't think it really needs to have an album aside from it. Hmm. Um, and you know, I'm glad we ended up doing it, but um, the whole process of writing the music was so bound up with the editing of the movie. Hmm. it was from November of 2018 until. June 2019 Devro and I were just back and forth back and forth all the time and I'd send him a little clip of some music I was working on and then he'd re-edit something and then I'd send well, him a well, the before we get
0: before we get too much into that then let's just start, start the beginning of the story then Honeydew the soundtrack the score is available to, to buy and list stream So starting at the beginning, and for people who and, and I know there are different there are different point jumping off points in terms of when a composer gets involved. Let's start with how you got chosen to score when did you first? Sure. How did that come about?
1: So the cinematographer and co-screenwriter Dan Kennedy is mm-hmm. uh, a longtime friend of mine. We I think we knew each other since we were middle school age. Um, and I wrote the music for his directorial debut, uh, Loud Places. Mm-hmm. And I think actually when we were in high school, we might have done something together for fun. So it's, it's great to see these sort of echoes through our lives. But, um, yeah, we did loud places together, which completely different music, more, you know, deliberately beautiful sort of sounding music. Yeah. Um, which obviously Honeydew is not. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and of course, Dan went to college, I believe with Devro and, um, at, uh, nyu and they were both film students um and then so deborah was looking for a composer and dan said oh check out john's music and i think he sent deborah it was interesting because he sent deborah the loud places music um and also what was really fun is that i showed him some music that i had had you know sitting in the box on the shelf for years that i'd written 10 or 15 years before yeah um instrumental pieces that he really loved. And I'd never really gotten any traction with them that had a particular kind of rhythmic quality to them that he, he was like, Oh, that's, I want that. And actually in the early version of the movie, he had put some of those mm. in the movie. Um, yeah. So that's how we got started. At what point in the
0: film's journey did Devro get you involved with creating the school?
1: When they were filming really, um, they, I, I was in touch with Dan. <sighs> mids well actually, I think it was late summer, I think my wife and I just came back from our honeymoon in uh, like August two thousand and eighteen and I got a text from Dan, and they were about to film. I think they were filming in September, yeah, and so I went out on set you know and um I think just one day might have been two, but I went out and saw how boring it is to make a movie, which was. <laughs> <laughs> There's so much support, the poor actors, you know, take after take, sitting, you know, let's do it again, let's do it again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which was new for me. <laughs> you only see the you see the final product, and you know how exciting it is.
0: No, indeed, indeed. So, if you if you got to sort of if you were involved as in the films being shot, so you're aware of what it is. You've, I
1: presumably you've got a script. That's right. I had the script. That was the first thing they sent me. The script. I read through it. I thought it was really weird. You know, I was like, I don't know. I, my first reaction was, I don't, I don't watch horror movies. I don't know if I'm the guy. I don't know anything about them. Mm. But it did, it appealed to me. And, you know, the, the, even in the script, you can perceive all the twists and turns in it. Um, and also the, the kind of, there's a weird sense of humor in the movie, too. For sure. That you could get through the script. Um, and so that, that idea of coming, um, to the set. I remember reading uh, Philip Glass's autobiography that he wrote a couple of years ago. And he was talking, I think, about Koyaanisqatsi um, or maybe the sequel to that. I can't remember the name of it. Okay. And how It was the sequel to that. And, and there's this opening scene of how, and he went there when they were filming. And I think it was in, somewhere in South America. And there's this scene of them um, mining for, for gold or diamonds or something. And he, and it's, you know, we assume this is this horrible sort of thing, right? They're, they're in this awful labor conditions, but he's got this like children's choir with trumpets playing. And I guess someone said to him, what, why did you do that? You know, it's this like slave labor situation. He said, yeah, he said, you think that that's what this is about? Actually, he said, I was there. And these guys are like, they love this. They're so excited. Like they find it like a diamond and they run off to the, you know, the market or wherever to sell it. And it's like, so I, I was thinking I have to be there because there's things you can't imagine until you're there
0: Mm.
1: and, and intangible things, things you can't anticipate. And one of them was, and I'm so happy to see Devereaux talk about this in interviews. I've seen him do the, the sounds of being out there in the summer in New England at night, you have um, crickets and cicadas and frogs and things like that. And so And that was actually resonated with an experience I had maybe 10 years earlier, being outside in the early springtime and listening to the sound of the spring peepers, little frogs, and the rhythms of their noises, which are kind of these roiling polyrhythms that kind of, you get closer to one and you can hear some emphasize, and you get closer, and they're over each other. And I remember going back and transcribing some of these rhythms, recording them and transcribing them. And so when I when we went to the set of Honeydew, I did the same thing. I took my little voice recorder, and you know, and transcribed some of these rhythms and the rhythms of the, you know, cicadas and people. Well, there probably weren't any peepers in September, but yeah. the frogs and crickets. So, so it literally, you know, the sound of the set informed the music. And so when you had this sort of seeming chaos or like organic oozing of sounds, it's because of that idea.
0: Yeah, because that's that's something that comes across really strongly with when you watch the film, and certainly if you're able to sort of indulge yourself with either seeing it in the cinema or or, or put you put your headphones on, is that your music and the sound of the the place are often fighting with each other. Really, in some ways, it's like you're or it's what it's all of one and none of the other, and vice versa. So there's mm. there's times when the film just naturally exists. There's no music whatsoever, and then there's other times where everything that's real disappears and your music becomes the tone of the film. When I wrote the review of the film, it's it's your music in the first half of the movie, because like you say, there's like a dark sense of humour going on that you're not quite... Understanding and there's no way of guessing where the horror is going to come from and where it will end. And I'm not going to spoil it in this conversation. But, but for for much of that, comp- for much of that part, there really is just your music telling us and reminding us we're watching a horror film and to be That's ready right. for
1: it. Yeah, yeah. And people have mentioned that to us. So, you know, you look at the scene and they're eating dinner, right? But then you're, you're hearing this. It's sort of all yeah. these weird. You know, sounds going on too. So yeah, it's, a, it's sort of a cue that things aren't quite right, and the scraping blades. You know, yeah, the blade on whetstone and things like that. That's uh... yeah, it was just our it's just our, our kitchen knives. I think we got as a wedding present or something that I'm sharp. You know, just the sh- the sharpening. So in that sense, so when because that's.
0: I mean, I've interviewed. Um, oh goodness gracious! What they called? Um, there's an experimental electronic band who whose name escapes me now, but they did a whole album based on samples of plastic surgeons doing operations. Ooh! <laughs> so it's a really, you know, it's a genuinely visceral experience. Yeah, but
1: then when you know what it is, it's sort of twice as visceral. Well, it's interesting because a lot of these things, I actually have no idea. Had no idea about these. What, what's called? Um... You know the the people listen to sounds. Uh, um, Amsr, yeah, Amsr. I didn't know about this, and you know people saying, "Oh, it's like ASMR." And and, and um, it's so funny because I said, "I, I guess so." It's, it's it's it was really you know Devere had a lot to do with with, with this because I would send him at first things for instruments. Oh, here's something for the piano, a little beautiful tune, mm. or a violin, whatever, and he's ah, I don't know. You know, he wanted. He wanted. He kept saying, "Let's do something stranger." And I think that the first time I sent him a track of me doing these rhythms on my my cheeks, basically, and making mm. sound effects, and he was he was so excited. He was like, "Oh!" And he couldn't have known it at the time that you know there's a particular thematic element about somebody's cheeks, or that are you know you know maybe become a meal at some point. And then, and that I wasn't even thinking about that, and I mentioned that to Debra after the fact. The yeah, penny's just that dropping now for
0: me, to be honest with you, as you're saying it. Yeah,
1: it's, a, <laughs> it's such an Easter egg. I, I shouldn't even tell you. People should like you know film students of the future find <laughs> this out of their own. But um, it was like it was unconscious at at, at the most, but um, it was it was really cool. i realized realizing that. Oh, cheeks! There's so much cheeks in it and there's there's this language That's my cheek. <laughs>
0: Well, I I was—I was—I'm glad you told me though, because I was while while focusing on trying to understand what it was you were doing, I'd wrote down: Is he tapping on a UPVC pipe? Is he—is he flicking his teeth? (laughs) I couldn't quite work out what it was, but now, yeah, so yeah, you
1: you know, you change the shape shape of your mouth, changes the pitch, and yeah, um, and there's glass, you know, water. uh, We have these giant uh, wine glasses, and I just kind of fill them up with water and tap them while I'm tapping them, you know. Shift them around and the pitch shifts.
0: I mean, I think for anyone that sees the film, I mean, the opening, the opening two minutes or so almost sets sets the mood of the film anyway in terms of the, in terms of what you're giving to the movie because you've got this kind of almost like doomy choir sound is the best way I can describe right. it for the the girl eating the steak and eggs while reading yeah. what appears to be Bible passages or some quasi religious stuff, but then it cuts hard to the funeral sequences. And then we've got this more, almost like tinnitus, yeah, sound going on. So we've we've got this we've got this uh, ethereal ethereal moment, but this really ugly eating of steak and eggs, and then this really visceral attack, which is meant to be a moment of solemnity as well, you know. And we're not, yeah. qu- and it's, and 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 I wrote down when I was getting ready for this conversation. You know, it sort of sets a pattern for the entire film at that point. <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the, the, and that dichotomy. Yeah, right. That was that was actually probably the first track that we did that I was like, okay, this is onto something unique for this movie. Hmm. And it was really just just me kind of mumbling nonsense, you know, <laughs> in harmony. And um, and it's something I've done with um, like with Gregorian chant. I found if you you need to have at least usually like three three people in the same vocal register, like three men, three women, to have the sound of of a blended voice. So I would do each pitch in, you know, I'm doing, there's harmony, but I do each pitch three times, you know, so I'm one one recording, and then another one, and then and then record the harmony parts with that. Um, and it's really just kind of you know nonsense, mumbling. And how does the, I mean I'm fascinated then, given given
0: the level of experimentation that's going on there, because that's not scoring music in a kind of traditional yeah. notation and melody or rhythm or even you know beats and stuff. It's like this is. This is about creating musical sounds which are almost punctuation, aren't they, rather than tunes if that makes sense.
1: Well, I've been thinking a lot about this. There, in, in my head right now, there's sort of three different modes of making music that, okay. um, that I, I vacillate you know between these different ones. One of them is just pure improvisation, right which happens happens live, happens mm. once it's gone. Um, and then there's, of course, you take, you take a score. You, you write the music down so it can be perfectly reproduced. And the other one, there's this sort of third way which is what you're describing, which is like sound sculpture mm. where you're making a recording you add something else to it you make little tweaks um, and that's kind of somewhere between the two because a lot of times with this and for honey I'll write I write sketches of scores if I, if there is a harmony part, I'm writing out what that should be you know if there's particular there notes or rhythms I write sketch them out. Mm. Um, but then there is a, a, a lot of improvisation that happens into the microphone in just in layers, and then you know, editing them and you know, manipulating
0: them. And if we talk about a, speci- a couple of specific scenes, because I think it would be it's, it's kind of instructive as to almost illustrating how obtuse the music that you scored can be compared to what was seen. And I think the example you gave of, 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 of uh, was it Philip Glass, did you say, was talking yeah. about the the. The idea of this music being over here and the image being somehow at the complete opposite end of what it was, what it was illustrating, um, and it's a really simple one. It's the, um, the the scene with Riley and Sam when they're having sex in the tent. Oh yeah, I mean the image is like almost like looking through a telescope. Anyway, so it's very voyeuristic. Yeah, but there's nothing sexy about the music that's been put
1: to it. <laughs> well, I have to be honest. I didn't put that music there. Yeah, <laughs> I was surprised when I saw the final cut that that was the music. Um, because that was actually, that's and it comes back later. And then, and there's, there's places where devro did that, where he put music from earlier yeah. and, and moved it around. So that was actually, um, that kit was originally for the scene where they're on the post and uh, Ulysses is coming and mm. and the, and just before the, well, I shouldn't, I don't want to spoil yeah. too much. I know what you and, mean. So we'll carry on yeah Yeah. And so there's this building up of tension and that's when that, that, that is the same chanting with the driving. Yeah. Tension. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I and Devro took that and put it in that in that scene in the tent. So, yeah, I I can't take responsibility for that that particular placement.
0: that no, is interesting thing because because I think for someone who might be doing their first composition or a filmmaker trying to find a, collabor- a collaborative process with their composer there's no there's no there's no straight line between what music you get to go on a film and what you don't get is there
1: yeah and and there's a misperception i think a lot of people they see a movie and they say oh look at how Hans Zimmer built up this big climax here going into the scene. Well, it, it doesn't take into, especially with digital editing film now, you know, how the director is able to, you know, tweak the, the image to fit that music exactly. And yeah. takes, takes music, puts it in other places. I remember being in a, a, a film composition class in college. And I think the teacher had done a lot of this kind of thing because a lot of it was that, oh, look at how this composer was able to build the timing of this scene up with the tension. But in in reality there's so much more back and forth. Probably now more than there used to be in the past, because you know, the director he's editing while I'm still writing music, it's like we can he can tweak, he can take things I've written, put them over there, re-edit his scene to make them really integrated. Can you can you talk about a scene then where there was that specific
0: backwards and forth where you've 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 been asked to do music for a scene that ended up being it and the back and forth that happened.
1: Yeah, um, I would say a, a good example would be there's a particular cameo with a uh, that comes in towards the end of the movie and this character kind of appears and there's this kind of mumbling and um, uh, there's scraping, mumbling. Actually, there's like a, a weird sort of horn sound which is me blowing into our neighbor's garden hose. Um, and that's a scene, yeah, where he had early on because we hadn't gotten to that point in the film, taken other tracks I'd done and he sort of got as much as he possibly could out of them. It was, things were repeating themselves. So then this was a scene that we really went back and forth and, um, Hmm. and with that sort of the timing adjustments and, Oh, we need more. We need another, you know, three minutes here to stretch through this whole scene because at first I, you know, I asked him, can you give me timestamps throughout the whole movie? Where do you want music? And that Particular whole section was several different. Oh, timestamp here, timestamp here, and I was like, "Well, can we just think of this as a whole scene from the time?" Okay, they're sitting up on this post, you know, through the end of it, and that made it much more manageable for me to think of it that way rather than little snippets.
0: Well, was I mean, in, in a bit that stood out for me in terms of the the choices outside of what you would consider to be rhythm and melody is. Is the sudden jumps, starts, and stops that happen during, say, when Sam has his midnight feast. That yeah. sequence in particular seems to one lull me into relaxing at one point and then it wants to stab me at the next yeah. point. And I'm not quite sure why. <laughs> and then you've got the image of Goonie appearing from nowhere. Yeah, is there? So you've got the action doing stuff. So in a way, it felt like for me, and I've never noticed this before when I I mean, I don't always look at scores as closely as I might do with this one we're talking about, but it certainly felt to me like the music was, <laughs> it was like the music was acting alongside the characters in a way, if that makes mm-hmm. sense.
1: Yeah, I, I actually watched it when we had it for the, um, it was the Night's Dream Festival, I think was when we first, the first festival we premiered it at. And I was sitting with a friend of mine watching it, and he said, he said, oh, yeah, he said the music was like its own character, the whole thing. Mm. And, and that has has so much to do with Devro's editing, too, because he, like I said, there's there's places that I wrote specifically, and then there's a place where he snipped things up and put them in and in ways that surprised me when I watched it. Well,
0: the, the, I guess the hardest part of your role in this film was was that initial conversation and agreeing, no, that's what I want. And you're, and you're suddenly running with this freedom to blow into your neighbor's hose and flick your cheeks or whatever else you might want to do.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, and just getting to that point. And, um, I just remembered walking, you know, my, my wife coming home one day, she went out for a walk with her friend and she came back and it was a particular, uh, moment early on where Sam and Riley are walking to Karen's house and there's a bear trap that appears suddenly. Hmm. It's sort of this fun music. It's like wah wah wah. This sort of like yes, silly a, music. it's a
0: really yes. Yeah, a... And
1: then all of a sudden, there's this like scre- you know jump scare, and um and it was just I was just kind of like yipping and clapping and making and my wife came out I play. I was like, oh check out. She's and she, she's like, well, is this what you've been doing? It's so you know you're getting you're getting paid to be your you know your weirdest possible self here. Just. <laughs>
0: You mentioned early on about about how when you're on set the importance of hearing the real sounds, and yep. obviously there's also sound design in and amongst mm-hmm. that real sound and what you're providing with the music. So, how much collaboration was there between you and the sound department, and in particular, I'm thinking sort of Remain and Stürmer and Camille Thomas, who are credited as foley artists. Did you do anything direct with them, or
1: no, no, I, I, I think I, I. I met them on set, I believe, but I never actually, um, we never corresponded. So Deborah would have been our intermediary there. Got you. Got you. Yeah. What, what, um, in that sense, then, what, what
0: would you, what would you say was the sort of most challenging aspect then of, of making the score for this film as you, as you, because you're obviously in once you're back at home and you're in your studio, you're, you're in isolation. Obviously, you can send stuff in for a response, but while you're creating, you're, you're doing that without an audience, aren't you? So
1: what, what for you was the most challenging aspect? The hardest part was just the sheer quantity of okay. music. And, and that was because of that back and forth. So I, you know, I, I laid it all out actually point. I had, I think I wrote about four hours of music. You know? Gee whiz. Yeah. <laughs> you know, a lot of it was just the same stuff, a little bit different, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, and I was happy to do it. You know, we just, you know, I'd make something say, so, Oh, that's, I really like this. Can you make it with, Da, 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 da. And so let me go ahead and do that.
0: So it's a bit um, like your music. So going back to that idea that your music was a character, it was like here's yeah. take one, here's take two, here, yes, and let Devro pick the t- take sometimes of what he yeah, wants for exactly. the most. Yeah.
1: Yeah, you know, and sometimes there, you know, there'd be disagreement there as to what we should, you know, but but I always had to, and as a composer, I always have to say, well, the director is the one with the bird's eye view of what this whole film needs. Yeah. So I might have a preference cuz like I musically I like this particular thing but it mm. might not be you know the best thing for that scene.
0: Yeah and and because because of the the visceral nature of of a lot of the the music that you've provided it's not always in the bounds of of what you would call taste you know it's like yeah. you know I don't hum, I don't hum what you, a lot of what you've done I'm not going to be humming a lot of what you've done I mean there are signature moments but but largely, uh, there's, there's there's elements of what makes it effective, which is just the mechanics of music. But it isn't it isn't enjoyable, and that, that sounds like a, it's not that's not a pejorative yeah. word. It's a-
1: no, I'll take that as a as a compliment. I think <laughs> no, please do <laughs> No, well, it's you know, it's funny. I I've, I've been thinking about this a lot with especially with film music because I um you know a lot of like the superhero movies you kind of go to, and they'll have these sort of nebulous or orchestral scores. Hmm not necessarily tuneful. Some of them are, some of them not. And I know that's a lot on the directors and producers don't want the music to be tuneful. But I think, and I think when I watch it, why does it need to be a string orchestra? A, you know, a string orchestra, you need a string orchestra if you want to write parts out for people to play. Mm. That's kind of hard to do if you're doing body percussion and household sound effects. But if you're making all the recordings yourself with the, you know, a microphone in your living room, why why does it have to be uh instruments that you know pianos and violins why can't it be whatever sounds you can think of so you've you've mentioned a few ideas of what you've what you've what
0: you've translated into sounds that became the score for the film what what's yeah. what's your kind of favorite in, in, in sort of inventive use of sound that you've then applied to this score
1: oh um well, we talked about the hose horn which which is not an invention of mine that's you know that's a uh, that's a known entity. Yeah, and I, I'm hesitant to say exactly what it is. So there's there what people have mistaken as a theremin, or you know, um, Devereaux wanted a um, musical saw um, at early on, and. I actually talked. I talked with a friend of mine who's a cellist. I said, "Oh, can you play a musical saw?" And he said, "Oh, yeah, I could." So we were kind of thinking about that. And then I, I was just experimenting one day at home, and I was able to come up with this sound that mm. ended up being the, the, the musical saw. Um, there's a lot of stuff with um, uh, water glasses, um, just sort of creating a sustained kind of unsettling harmony. I think if you listen to the soundtrack album, there's a there's a track. I think it's uh, the box which, which as it gets into it gets into the cheek slapping and then these these sustaining tones which are um yeah, so it's water glasses but then I kind of I add a, I do a lot to the sounds to distort them um And you put me on the spot, and I'm thinking, there's lots of silverware. Uh, you know, I you know if it's real silver, like a silver fork, yeah. it's got a great tinging kind of sound. Um, there's lots of cheek slapping, lots of um, stomach slapping, um, little, huh, huh, that sort of stuff. And then I transpose the sound way down. Oh, there's actually one, there's a deep bell that comes in a few times. And it's actually just one of those same wedding glasses. Giant wine glasses, and I just transpose it down two or three octaves.
0: Oh wow!
1: So, so it sounds like this giant deep bell. I mean, I'm, I'm a big, I'm a big fan
0: of um, of drone drone rock music and doom jazz, which, you know, they're, they're forms of music that, on the surface, they're not very melodic, but you, as the listener, I think, end up tuning into oscillation somewhere in it because it becomes enjoyable and i think that's a lot of what over the piece of the film your score does is that even the jarring bits you become accustomed to because they happen yeah. so regularly they're not they're no less surprising but they become mm. the language of the film so you begin to tune into it and that's something that yeah. i remember when i was reviewing the film is mm. that the the effectiveness of the movie because like like we said at the beginning of the conversation for the first for the first half of the film you know you're in a horror film but nothing horrible has really happened. There's been <coughs> there's clearly clues, and it's obviously off its head. Yeah. But you're not thinking this is sore at that moment by any stretch right. of imagination. But yeah. the music that, that Devro has chosen to use of yours, alongside the, you know, Betty Boo on the TV or Popeye, you know, which has got that kind of oldie analogue, yeah, rough sound to it. It sounds horrible, so therefore adds to a horror sound in a way.
1: Yes, yeah, right. Um and uh well you're you're making me think of other sounds too. So I'm getting distracted back in the other direction. Well I like well I'll tell you what
0: I like to you, one where, where the two work together that really really is affecting is the bit where the the that Riley and Sam are being shown to their room for the night mm-hmm. by Karen. Yeah. And you've got that I'm guessing it's cable access TV star doing his wobbling. Yeah. Yeah, and then, yeah. then there's your atonal stuff, but people yep. are still talking. There's not yep. like it's not like the sound is just there present, it's it's in addition yes. to talking and a guy singing.
1: And a lot of those are, um, you know, there's a lot of whistling that I'll do in, in specific harmonies and then, you know, fiddle with the sounds digitally hmm. and singing, singing in different registers and particular harmonies. And then, of course, the body percussion and, um, you know, playing on glasses, um, and then there, there's, there's some other things too. Like, um, oh, I had this, this, this rhythmic thing that comes in at one point, and it was a combination of me you know, tearing a piece of paper and turning the water faucet on. So it was like, so there's, there's lots of stuff like that throughout. I mean, it could be make a long list of them, but no, it's amazing. No, it's, it's interesting to, to
0: sort of to hear. Hear the complexity and the layers. It's like, it's almost like you've turned the way you're describing it and the very real objects that aren't musical instruments is that you've it's like left field foley, for want of a better expression.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, and it's funny too, because okay, I remember as I'm coming, so so the last couple of weeks before my son was born, we were living at my we we were at my mother, my my father and mother-in-law's house because that's where the baby was gonna be born. There was a great big room there. And so I'm at their house trying to finish up the movie and I'm trying to find weird sounds and things. And, and it's inter- not, it's not, I was at, I remember asking, I was, I was asking my mother-in-law, always oh, there? I need a sound that makes it you know, like a, like a clanging metal or something kind of sound. And mm. It's not always what you expect. You look at an object and you say, Oh, what about this bell? You know, mm. you, like the actual sound itself is not going to. And what for that? So I, and so, so what I found was these little cast iron, Figurines that were in the fireplace, and and I picked them up and struck them with a drumstick. and I said, "Oh, that's the sound," you know. <laughs> no, well, uh, there's a, there's a techno
0: artist called Spooky who there's these there's in his music there's these like almost like they sound like the laser sounds in a in a Star Wars movie, really. Yeah, yeah. But it's a it's a wrench hammer on the cable of a pylon. Yeah. And then he's twiddled with the with the you know with the with the octaves or whatever. But essentially, that's the root, the root of the the noise you're hearing is just a wrench hammer against a taut
1: piece of steel. I remember uh, listening to a conversation with a foley artist once, and him saying, "The interviewer asking, oh, what was this sound?' Oh, oh, that's a wet chamois cloth. What about what about the stabbing? Wet chamois cloth. What about a punch? That's just it's a wet chamois cloth.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, the other one, the other one is the um, is the lettuce, isn't it? Is the uh, it's, yeah, the yeah. knife in a lettuce, the, knife, right. the the tearing of a lettuce.
1: Yeah, the, and the, it's just that whole it's that whole movie magic thing. It's like even for for visuals, it's not hmm. what you assume would be the best thing that will be the best thing that will come across in the movie.
0: Yeah, and, and also I guess I guess if you, I mean, you're trained to to make music, but obviously music for film has got a job beyond. Yeah, what what you might make music for an audience for, if that may, even though there's an audience for the film, mm-hmm. it it has to function like like the director wants it to, rather than entertain. Which I guess you know, I'm simplifying what music might be for traditionally speaking. How, yeah, how how do you? I mean, it obviously sounds sounds like you you kind of your willingness to experiment knows no bounds in a sense. It's like, and it's interesting what you describe with your three different sort of modes of music. Because I, mm-hmm. as a writer. I mean, every day I write a thousand word short story, stream of conscious in the morning, which yeah. has got nothing in common with how I might work with a producer talking about an idea. And it's certainly got nothing like how I would sit down and start writing pages of a screenplay, but yes. they're all writing.
1: And, <laughs> and so one of my favorite ways of writing music is that um, working from the outside in, okay, which is like how, how Beethoven wrote, how Schoenberg wrote you know, having a sense of what, what's the overall picture here. And, you know, I'm working on this thing right now, this, this school that I've taught at for a long time now, and we're, it's our, it's our 10th anniversary and we're making like a, a video for all the, all the kids to play their part sort of thing. Got you. And, and I'm doing, and I went back to um, sort of uh, minimalist music, process music, and you take a fundamental idea, make an overall form out of it, and then work in towards the micro, which is in some ways the opposite of what I'm doing here with film. Because with film, it's wonderful because the form is already made. I don't have to worry about the form. The form is, write some music that goes from, you know, five minutes, 22 seconds to 11 minutes and 45 seconds. That's the canvas. Know what, you, you know what lane you're in at, very, at the very least. Yeah, it's, I, I love it. It's, it's the same thing with choral music. Choral music's wonderful because, you know, if you want, there's a form right there, which is the text, you know, just use the text as your form. So I like I like it when the form is suggested. Form is difficult in music. I think it's probably harder than say painting, where your form is you have this canvas, fill it up. But in music, form is time. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So
0: so in that sense, then when you're coming, so the conversations with Devro, it's all very well. I guess it's all very well for him to go, yeah, yeah, like that, and then you come off the call and you're like. All right, like, then you go scratch your head, go like what again, like that, <laughs> and it's kind of like, and if and if you're thinking of the mic, because in that sense you're at the micro moment, aren't you? And the possibilities yeah. are can go anywhere, can't they?
1: Yes. Well, and that's that's kind of one of the spots where you just have to, um, you know, the first thing you do is you, you sort of trust your instincts and just do what you think is going to work great there. Mm. I think you know working with DevRo. That is most of the case, which is wonderful. You know, sometimes you get into a situation where you're like, "This is the best thing I've ever written. I'm so happy with this." You give it to, him. <laughs> and they're like, "Not quite what we're looking for. Sorry. Can you try again?" But you can't try again because you already just gave it everything you had, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was going
0: to say, so I, I mean, that, that doesn't sound too dissimilar from a screenwriter's experience, to be honest yeah. with you. It's kind of you're giving in your draft and you're hoping you're hoping to get a pat on the head. So you can yeah, carry on you're like this new. is amazing. I
1: love, this is the best thing I've ever written, right? Yeah, yeah. And yeah. then they said, and they're like, nah. Could you could you could you do it again and make it sound exactly like this other thing, but not, not exactly, not exactly like it.
0: <laughs> I mean, uh, just as as, a, as an abstract thought, rather than specifically about the uh, just thinking about the role of the composer. How useful or not useful do you find a guide track as a when, come, as a as a composer coming to do a project?
1: That's a great question. It depends on who the director is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, So working with Deborah was great because he wasn't he was not wedded to his temp tracks. You know, he did have some temp tracks in the music. Mm -hmm. um, But it was they were just they were starting points. So um, he had this idea that I I remember at the beginning, he wanted steel drums, which we kind of got very far away from. He was listening to some sort of steel drum orchestra. Mm. And the whole driving scene at the beginning, he had this idea he wanted steel drums, and I, I ended up taking this little Glockenspiel and sort of rolling notes on it. And I tried putting screws in my piano and stuff, and you know, make, trying to make it sound like a steel drum. And um, and then he he sent me, and actually, this was really key. Was this um, I had never seen Punch Drunk Love? Okay, the Paul Thomas Anderson film. Yes, and um, uh, and and the soundtrack for that. Um, which is very rhythmic and unusual, and I remember listening to it and, and not being sure how the sounds were made. And I, you know, sometimes as a composer, you hear something like that, you're like, "Oh man, I wish I could make a sound like that." I, I you know, I don't, I can't do that. And that's what that was the impetus for the um, because it was some sort of like drum sound, but it had an electronic feeling to it. Hmm. So that's when the that's when the cheek popping thing started because I was like, "That's kind of maybe it's sort of like a cheek popping got you thing. got you." Um. So, so yeah, in that case, when you're working with someone like that, who's just using it as um, like, well, you know, watch this film. This this score is really effective in this way. There was actually, uh, what was the name of the movie? There was, um, I wish I could remember it. It was about a guy, it was a recent film. I think it was on Netflix about a guy who, this crazy family killed his family or something, and but they got away with it. And now they're getting out of jail. Oh, Blue Ruiz. Yes, exactly. Blue Ruiz. And he you know the score for that, which is sort of this like sort of oozing, moaning sort of sirens, sort of shifting like you're saying, drone music, um so I watched that, and of course since since I kind of a wimp with thrillers and things like that, i was I would sort of scroll ahead to Netflix and Netflix to see like, oh, does he get whacked on oh, no, all these good <laughs> okay, <laughs> yeah, just, um and um. It was funny too. I, I I read somewhere, I think it was in a review, that someone said, "Oh, the music is, you know, he's clearly kind of ripping off The Shining." And I was like, "Actually, I don't think I've ever actually watched all of The Shining." Well, <laughs> <laughs> so don't tell Devo. Sorry if he hears this. But but in a way, but in a way though, John, who who's ripping off
0: who's ripping off The Shining? Because like you've described, the process of you making four hours of music, yeah. discussing it backwards and forwards, and then John in the uh, sorry Devo in the edit. Then choosing, but then changing his mind, oh, what to do with but, that, that music he's choosing is not ripping off anything. That's a well. I just
1: thought it's it, it's 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 really actually kind of it amused me to read that because I I do know the music that's in The Shining quite well a lot of it because it uses Bartok's Spring, springs percussion and celeste quite a lot. Yeah, and that's that's a piece I've, I've really studied. It's extremely rigorous in its form. Like every note is accounted for. The structure is built along the Fibonacci series, golden ratio, which is nothing like Honey Dude's music. <laughs> so I read that and I, was, I thought, that's, well, that's quite amusing. You know, that's, you know, people mishear things. They say, oh, this sounds like somebody plucking his teeth, right? Or that sort of thing. Or this is just like the, you know, the music from The Shining. I say, like, well, this is probably as far from Bartok as you could get in terms of its disordered quality. Can you, yeah. can
0: you can you can you having with your familiarity of that music because I don't I don't know it as a mm-hmm. I know it as as the score to to The Shining but I don't yeah. know it as Bartok's music. Yeah. Can you do you understand what they're hearing though that's making them think it's like The Shining? Yeah, they hear
1: they hear atonality.
0: Okay, okay. So it's the so, that element of Bartok they're hearing that's so they're just marrying the two up. Yeah,
1: exactly. So um, what but where where his a tonality is, you know, extremely ordered. Hmm. Like a lot of times. So, you know, instead of like a major a C major chord, he takes like a he'll take a C and then mirror mirror an interval, you know, down up and down against that, you know, at like a but I don't want to get too technical, but I, if I have my keyboard turned on, I could just play it for you. Hmm. Um, maybe I should do that. But no, I've got my head. That won't work. But <laughs> It's okay, no, um, I, I kind of get, I, because that's that's one of the things
0: that certainly comes across in the film is that there are moments where the music is fighting itself, for want of a better mm-hmm. expression. You know, the, yeah. what you're what you're providing us with is a challenge yeah. to us to understand, because we're trying to, it's almost like as an audience, we're trying to understand it. And I think, and that's yeah. maybe why people, why, why a reviewer may well see The Smartest, because I think in The Shining, there's not a lot going on until the finale. Yeah, there's only really the presence of the music that makes again that makes you believe you're in a horror
1: film. Oh, that's however. a that's a great analogy then. Yeah,
0: um, that's that's just my thoughts. I I, I wouldn't. Yeah. I can't I can't claim what the reviewer was thinking, but yeah, I can see how because I think that's because I think that's what and, and and knowing it's a collaboration between you and Devro is the important thing, I think, for anyone listening in as a, as a director or as a composer, because mm-hmm. because it isn't about one person getting their own way or not getting their own way. It? I mean, obviously, that it can boil down to that, I'm sure. But mm-hmm. but there's there's music, like like you talked about, there's time and it needs filling with music and you've been asked to provide it. And yeah. Deverell's got the problem of, is that the right music or is that not? And there's only so right. far you can backwards and forwards between driving each other mad. And therefore, yeah. like you said it can end up being he'll take some other music that was that was for somewhere else and go hold on a minute this now works for that and you're not in control of that then are you you you've, you've provided the music but not for that yeah. moment
1: right well and and that's where i think the improvisatory nature of how this worked was a real virtue it's not like i spent you know three weeks scoring something for an entire symphony hmm. we went to the studio recorded it you know the studio paid 100 musicians and then at the, in the editing room, that scene gets cut. Mm. <laughs> it was, you know, it was me It was me making up sounds and fiddling at home. So in that way, you know, uh, a much more direct process and not, not quite as much cost involved. So I was just kind of creating this big bucket of music for Deborah to play with. In a lot of ways. Sometimes, you know, I hope mostly for specific moments, but then other times, you know, take it from here and say, oh, maybe that works pretty well here. Well look, for the most it's, part. It's
0: it's yeah. a fantastic score for a fantastic film. Um Thank one you. last thing I haven't mentioned, because I did not know, so it just dawned on me. Is it going is is um now I listened to it through Spotify, which obviously is not the greatest way for you to receive money for the music. Is um is there gonna be a physical release of of the score as well? Or is there a physical yeah. release?
1: There is. There is. Uh Spart Records, uh the finished label is gonna um Somewhere down a couple months down the road, I'm not sure exactly the timeline, but it's in the works. Um, Yeah, and it's on iTunes um, and Amazon, so it can be purchased. Brilliant. Well, we'll put we'll put
0: links in the show notes to where it can be purchased as well as streamed. Yeah, and it just gives me to say thank you very much for giving us your time on the Britflix podcast.
1: Oh, my pleasure. Thank you very much, Stuart.